The word mindfulness has become a trendy catchphrase these days, hasn't it? And some avoid using the M word altogether because it feels woo-woo or unprofessional. So they make up new ways to package it for the skeptics. The thing is, whatever you want to call it, I can tell you that a mindful approach to life and work can make a world of difference. I was intrigued by Cliff Smith's title, Mindfulness Without the Bells and Beads, because like him, I've learned a lot about the value of these skills for leadership, productivity, and well-being. As scientists study the effects of mindfulness practices on our brains and physical and mental well-being, we learn more every day. Some of Cliff's thoughts on what mindfulness is and what it isn't may surprise you. It's a bit controversial, but it's clear that it's worked for him and other corporate leaders around the world. Whether you're mindful, curious, or skeptical, listen to the podcast and let us know what you think. So welcome, Cliff. It's really nice to have you on Mindful Social. I think, you know, one of the things that really grabbed me about the title of your book was Mindfulness Without the Bells and Beads, because I think that's such a misconception that people have about what this mindfulness thing is. So can we talk a little bit about what that means to you? Sure. Well, it's, first of all, it's great to be here, Janet. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, and so when you, when you ask what that means, you mean what mindfulness means or what the sort of how the title of the book came about? Both. Both. Um, so I would say the title of the book, yes, totally in alignment with your, your comment there. You know, there's mindfulness has typically been framed um, and has sort of this stereotypical image around it where you have to have bells, you have to have beads, you have to burn incense, have a special cushion that you put in the corner of your room. Uh, but the fact of the matter is uh, you don't need any of those things. You don't need to add anything into your life in order to effectively practice mindfulness and benefit from, uh, from that practice. Um, and so mindfulness without the bells and beads is really targeting folks that may have those misconceptions that may think like, oh, if I pick up a mindfulness practice, that means I have to also get a yoga studio membership. That also I have to maybe I'm becoming a Buddhist and I don't want to become a Buddhist. That's not what my faith is. Um, and so really, the, a lot of what I want to share in the book is to peel back those layers of hype, to cut through uh, the, the unnecessary accessories. Now, those, there's nothing wrong with those things, right? There's nothing wrong with bells and beads and, and, and incense. They have their contexts. But um, if you don't want to use them, that's okay. That's not going to diminish your ability to cultivate your level of mindfulness and reap the benefits of having a higher baseline level of mindfulness. Um, and so the book is really designed to demystify it, share some of the science and benefits, and then walk people through a step-by-step -step course that will enable them to build a solid foundation of mindfulness to impact their leadership, their performance, and their well-being. And I love that you, in the book, in the second half of the book, you actually offer an eight-week self-led course, which is really pretty cool. I walked through it and, and uh, you know, it, the some of the balances that you put in there are things like having a formal or an informal practice for people to work through. So can you talk a little bit about the mindset that you're hoping people will come to um, the book and the class with? 
Yeah, I mean, well, certainly an open mind is a great one to bring <laughs> to, uh, to a, a book or a class like this. I mean, particularly, again, when I do my keynotes, you know, when I wrote the book, I was thinking of the skeptic, right? I was thinking of how can I reach that person who, um, you know, the word meditation is sort of, they have an allergic reaction to it, or they have a sort of a allergic reaction to the term mindfulness, because it's been associated to so many sort of uh, things that maybe they're not in alignment with. And um, that maybe that this book can be one that is going to dispel with the hype. <laughs> Why do I say hype? Because we can, both of us right now could stand up from these chairs, go into the closest grocery store to us, and we would see things like mindful pistachio nuts and mindful mayonnaise. And so you know things are going a little bit off the rails when companies are using the word mindfulness to try to get you to buy and consume more mayonnaise, mm -hmm. right? So there's all of this hype. And then unfortunately, you know, there's, there's still a lot of misunderstanding about what meditation is and what mindfulness is. And then also on top of that, again, very unfortunate that there's a lot of deliberate misrepresentation of the word mindfulness in order to get you to buy things or to, in order to get you to you know, um, purchase some training course. So, you know, I'll see things like executive presence courses have now become executive uh, presence and mindfulness courses or mindful executive presence. And when you sort of dive down into these courses, uh, you see that there is really an executive presence course. And then you see a few sort of cut and paste jobs from Wikipedia, <laughs> the mindfulness Wikipedia entry, right? Where the, the person is like, oh, I'm just going to Google the word mindfulness, pull in some stuff into my executive presence course. And now I can market it as an executive presence and mindfulness course. And unfortunately, that works for many people because there's so much misunderstanding about mindfulness. Anybody can get up on stage, ask people to close their eyes and say they're doing a mindfulness practice. And they probably aren't, you know, there's pick up any app that you can find on the app store. There may be 40,000 or 50,000 meditations on there, but they're not all mindfulness meditations. This idea that every time you do a meditation, you're cultivating mindfulness is, is just totally inaccurate and, and mm -hmm. nobody talks about it. Um, and then the other thing I think that is important to share about my book is that um, I want to widen the frame around mindfulness. So mindfulness has typically been framed as a well-being enhancer or, or spiritually focused, right? From a well-being perspective, most of the people who are advocates for mindfulness, their story around it is um, I had you know, debilitating self-esteem and I found mindfulness and it helped me. I had debilitating anxiety. I found mindfulness and it helped me. I had debilitating uh, uh, panic attacks on, on TV and mindfulness helped me recover from that. And those are all valuable stories and we wanna tell those stories, but it seems like those are the only people talking about mindfulness, right? And so it gives off the impression that you only reach for mindfulness when you've hit rock bottom, mm -hmm. when, you've, when everything else has failed and it's like, oh, I gotta get mindfulness, but that limits its value. Right. You know, I think mindfulness is today where executive coaching was maybe 20 or 25 years ago. 25 years ago, no self respecting senior executive would say that they were getting executive coaching. Why? Because it would make them look like they needed coaching, right? Like there was something wrong with them. And so they would never share that. They didn't have that sort of paradigm that coaching 
could make you go from good to great, right? Mm -hmm. Michael Jordan had a coach, not because he wasn't good, but because he wanted to be the best he could be because he wanted to be at his peak performance. And he knew that coaching would help him get there. Mindfulness is on that cusp, right? Mindfulness can help folks who are doing exceptionally well to do even better, right? It's like this idea that rest and recovery is uh, required for peak performance. The mindfulness can help you enhance all parts of your performance, all parts of your leadership. And also, of course, it can help your, your well-being. Um, and I, so I like to try to widen that aperture to make it accessible for the folks that maybe they don't have debilitating anxiety. Of course, they're probably stressed. We've just been in a pandemic for the last year, but maybe they're not you know, having daily debilitating anxiety attacks. Okay, well, mindfulness can actually be a great benefit to you as well. And so I'm trying to speak to a number of audiences that I think have been inadvertently overlooked that could truly benefit from mindfulness. And I'm talking millions of people that fall in that category. Yeah, I think that's um, incredibly true that, you know, most of the people who um, are really promoting mindfulness is because it's made a major change in their life. And there are also people who are doing that in the corporate world. And with your experience in the corporate world at Ernst & Young and a whole bunch of other places will show up in your bio, um, you've really put these tools to use in a more high-powered environment and one that isn't focused on, oh, if you're being mindful, then you're weak, because that's one of the very common, oh, that, that stuff is too soft, or the soft skills. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so how does that translate to the corporate world, to the corporate environment, and uh, something just I grabbed from your book that I thought was really great was the idea of catch and release, mm. um, you know, and how that works. So very long question. I expect a long answer. Sure. So I would say in terms of how mindfulness can show up in, you know, high performing organizations, you know, always on or uh, high risk professions. Um, I, I do agree that people have, uh, many people have a misconception that mindfulness will dull your edge, but it's mm -hmm. quite the opposite. It, it really sharpens your edge. Um, and it may be soft skills, but soft skills are extremely important. Um, whether you're a diplomat, whether you are a soldier, whether you are, uh, a, you know, a corporate leader, <clears throat> soft skills make a huge difference in your ability to lead and your ability to influence your ability to convince and so extremely useful. Um, I, you know, I was in the intelligence community. I was a soldier. I, you know, I was a client server selling multi-million dollar deals to clients. Um, mindfulness helped me in all of those endeavors, right? I, I gave a, a keynote to a particular organization that has line workers, you know, the folks that are working on power lines out in the West. And one of the most dangerous jobs you can do right? And how does mindfulness help them? It helps them pay more attention to detail, right? Mm -hmm. Attention to detail helps prevent people from getting killed. It helps prevent people from making, uh, you know, overlooking some small thing that leads to somebody being electrocuted. And so mindfulness in that context can make them pay much more attention to their moment to moment experience on the job, but that has crucial benefits off the job when they're at home with their families, 
right? I, I talk about the, the amount of time we're distracted every day. I, I pulled a, a survey and I share this in some of my keynotes. How many times do we touch our phones every day? And the average from this particular survey was, I have it here, 2,617 times. 2,617. There's only 1,440 minutes in every day, right? And hopefully we're sleeping for some of those. So we're looking at a survey that's telling us that we're touching our phones on the order of one to three times per minute. That's a massive amount of distraction. And so when you think about how much time do you have with your family at night, if you happen to have a family, right? So I have a, a wife and I have a, a six-year-old son, and maybe I get, say, two hours or three hours with them at night. I can have three hours of high quality, true presence with my family, or I can have the same three hours of constantly distracted, not even paying attention to them time. Which one's going to make me feel like I have a better work-life balance? And so the ability to cultivate your attention, to be where you are when you're there, can help you at work. It can help you at home. It can help you when you're gardening and help you when you're on your morning jog, whatever it is that you do, it allows you to show up for it in a, in a more focused and present way so that you experience more of it and you have more access to real-time data, which allows you to make better decisions in the moment, mm. less trapped by, you know, past beliefs and biases and things like that as well. And so it definitely does not dull the edge. It, it sharpens the edge. Um, catch and release. So catch and release is something that's absolutely helped me change the trajectory of my life, right? Um, it's helped me make decisions that were, where my brain was telling me that I wasn't good enough. This is not something you can do. This is something for other people, right? So we have this, we have an inner dialogue. We have an inner voice. Oftentimes that inner voice is a critic, right? You know, yeah. it's, 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 it's trying to keep us safe, right? There's a negativity bias. It sees threats everywhere, right? And so um, putting yourself out there to um, learn Chinese, for example, when you failed high school English, there's going to be a dialogue happening in your head that's probably not going to be very helpful, right? You can catch that in the act. When you catch the brain in the act or the mind in the act of some kind of a rumination or some kind of limiting belief, as soon as you catch it, you're actually released from its power, even if it's just temporary. Why? Mm -hmm. Because you're not lost in that, right? You've probably heard the, the phrase, name it to tame it, when it comes to challenging emotions like anger. Right. So if you can name an emotion like anger in that moment, you're actually not lost in it and you're less likely to be operating automatically, habitually out of reaction from a place of anger. Now, it doesn't mean the anger went away. It just means that you're present as opposed to lost in it. And that has a huge impact on how you interact with whoever you're interacting with. It's the exact same thing with catch and release with unhelpful internal dialogue, rumination and limiting beliefs. If you can catch the mind in the act. You're temporarily released from its power and you can do the thing or at least attempt to do the thing that you might be interested in, right? So whether that's learning Chinese, whether that's asking somebody for their phone number because you're interested in them, or whether that's volunteering to take a leadership position when you have the inner dialogue that, that says, no, I'm not ready. That's for other people. I'm, I can't even lead myself. Why would other people be inspired to follow me? Again, it doesn't mean you'll be successful at doing the thing that you want to do, but at least it allows you to get into the ring. And once you get into the ring, most people will find that there's a the percentage of success is a lot better than what their mind was telling them it was going to be.
And so catch and release um, is a foundational exercise that I that I sort of touch on throughout the throughout the book, because you as as you gain attentional control through basic awareness of breath meditations, you actually catch more often those moments where your mind is keeping you small, right? Where you you you'll notice more readily those psychological barriers to your success, your you know high performance, and even even your happiness on some level. Yeah, and it's really that key. The first key is catching it because we so often go through life automatically and not realizing that you know we are performing things in ways that are really just so automatic that we don't even think about it and then all of a sudden one day we realize oh i could do this differently or oh my mindset is really not where i want it to be and to be able to let that particular thing just go and that empowers you, right? It it makes you own it instead of it owning you. Yeah, anytime I think anytime you um, recognize a habit, as soon as you become aware of it, that's the first time and, and the only time that you can do anything about it. All right, we have a lot of internal dialogue that's happening automatically. A lot of the same thoughts we have today are the ones we had yesterday, particularly self-referential thoughts. And despite many, if not most of these being like hovering below the level of your conscious awareness, they have a huge impact on on your behavior and also what you think is available to you in this life. And so when you notice those habits of mind, those patterns of thinking, as soon as you notice it, you're actually, that's the first moment you have a choice to do something different, Mm -hmm. right? Whether that habit is a habit of mind or whether that habit is reaching into you know, reaching for uh, a snack when you're feeling stressed, you know, as soon as you recognize that's a habit, oh, you know what, every time I have a difficult conversation with my boss, I reach for chips. Maybe, maybe you don't even notice that, but then at some point you notice it, then you can make a, a, you know, a different decision in that moment if you want to, right? You have, you actually have the choice as opposed to operating uh, out of habit. Um, And, and it just works across, um, domains of of one's life whether it's a personal or a professional type of situation yeah yeah and and recognizing that habit and that you do have choice because i think when we're in automaticity we just really don't even recognize that there's a choice that we could do things differently can you talk a little bit about the science behind once we recognize that opportunity and we make that change Talk a little bit about how our brains change as we begin to practice mindfulness on a regular basis. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of studies that that talk about how the brain changes in terms of of uh, you know, growth in certain areas, um, uh, reduction in size in other areas, and also functional changes as well. And so, some of the the more um, widely known um, studies share a, f- a few commonalities that there's there's an increase in the size and the activity of the anterior cingulate cortex which is connected to the prefrontal cortex and so this is this part of your brain is like a wise owl it's what gives you the ability to speak it's what allows you to think of or to to recognize consequences of your actions right the the second and third order effects of a particular behavior or a particular uh, converse comment that might you might you might uh, put out in the world um, so it, it sort of strengthens, increases the size of that part of the brain and, and, and increases the activity in it. 
it decreases the size and the activity of your amygdala. And you could think of your amygdala as kind of like a guard dog. It's designed to protect you. It's where fight, flight, and freeze is. It's, it's uh, where the seat of emotions is. You know, it, it, it sees a threat and reacts to it, highly reactive. Um, now, it doesn't mean it's bad. It has a very, it's a very important function, but when it gets out of hand, it can, it can be, cause a lot of challenges for us. Mm-hmm. And so it reduces the size and the activity in that region of the brain. It also increases the size of the, of the hippocampus. Um, you might consider this your USB drive. Like this is one of the functions among many functions is to move short-term memory into long-term memory and long-term memory are where insights arise when new data comes in and interacts with it. Mm-hmm. And then it also has been shown to increase the size of the insula. Now you could think of your insula as sort of like your sage or saintly self. This is what allows you to feel connection to others. So if you have any loving relationships or friendships, your insula is helping you feel some of those experiences, those emotions that helps you sort of understand it. That's also what helps you feel sensations in the body, things like that. And so it's connected mind body connection there. And what happens is those structural and functional changes, they give rise to a greater ability to notice any of those moments in our life where we're tend to be reactive and say things we later regret. Mm-hmm. And it gives us an ability to make a choice in that moment. It increases the space between what is often stimulus automatic reaction, and it changes it to stimulus thoughtful response or stimulus mindful response, if you want to go with the word mindful. Um, and so again, and I, and I say this in the book, there's a lot of great science around mindfulness, how it's helpful. It's still pretty young though. Neuroscience in itself is a young science. We're learning new things all the time. And that's one of the wonderful things about science is that it can change. Um, but it's pointed in a very positive direction. And um, I always tell people, if the science helps you pick up a practice, great. But what's most important is, does it help you, right? If you practice it consistently and it's helping you, you don't have to read another article about it. You can just reap the benefits. And if you do it and you do it diligently, consistently, and you don't think it's helping you, then by all means, you can stop. Most people have gotten to where they are today without a daily mindfulness practice. And most people go their whole lives without a daily mindfulness practice. We can do, we can do without it, but it does have some, some seems seeming to be scientifically validated benefits of, of having a regular practice, particularly in the modern world, right? You know, one of the things that we do at EY is we help companies transform. The reason we help them transform is because the world's transformed. Right? The volume of information and data and innovative technologies that they have to begin to incorporate into their business models just to survive is massive. And so we usher them through those transformations, not so they merely survive, but so they thrive. Mm-hmm. We really think that we as individuals aren't impacted by the changes in the modern world. Right? The amount of information we're dealing with on a daily basis, massively more than it was five or even just two years ago. You know, and then there's the blurring of home time and work time. And now pre-COVID, Especially it was now. now there's no line for many, many people. Mm-hmm. And then there's a constant barrage of attempts to hijack your attention in the new quote unquote attention economy where people walk around feeling like they control their own attention. But for the most part, their attention is being drawn in by applications on their phone, by work and work colleagues, you know, maybe some, uh, you know, some advertisements and maybe a, a show that they like to binge watch from uh, from time to time. And then what's left over gets issued out to their family and friends. 
And I alluded to it earlier, what's the quality of that attention that we're giving our family and friends when we actually have the time to be with them? Is it high quality presence or is it low quality, continuously distracted presence? And so anyway, it would <laughs> be a benefit. No, I think that's really good. And I, I think, you know, we do live in a very disruptive environment and especially now. And, you know, when you're dealing with these companies that are going through these major transitions, those are often very disruptive to the culture and the security of the people that work there. They get very, um, geez, disrupted. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so how can we help people who are going through that kind of a transition within a corporation or within their lives? How does mindfulness and bringing that attention really help them deal with that disruption? Well, I think, I mean, it's certainly not going to make it go away. I would <laughs> say that, you know, one of the things that often comes up in, in some classes that I teach is like, you know, um, Cliff, when I'm really looking forward to the time when I'm so proficient at mindfulness that I no longer have anxiety, when did that happen for you? And the answer is that it's not happened for me. It's not that bad things uh, stop happening that might cause me to be a little nervous or concerned about the future or about something, you know, maybe with my son, those events are still going to happen. The inevitable ups and downs of life are still going to happen. None of that's right. going to go away because of a mindfulness practice. But what mindfulness can do, it can help you recognize broader perspective, right? It can, you know, sometimes when, a, when change comes down uh, from the, the senior leadership about a transformation, we can, our minds can go out of control with rumination and, and, and speculation about what is all of this going to happen and we tend to ruminate on worst case scenarios right mindfulness can help us notice when that is when the mind is in that sort of state you can actually catch and release that as well but it takes practice it takes practice to to recognize you've been sitting at your desk for you know 45 minutes ruminating about what's going to you know you know you hear about it so, so here's an example you hear about a potential transformation somebody you overhear somebody in the office talking about some kind of transformation and what 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 happens you start thinking maybe you start thinking about your job i wonder if they're going to transform this job i know they've been thinking about putting in some automation i wonder if they're going to do that to my job and then you think about well, what well what's going to happen when they start to do that and then you think, well, um, I don't have a lot of other skills. You know, I'm just really focused on this accounting stuff. And then, and then like 10 minutes later, you're imagining yourself in a, in a soup kitchen, you mm -hmm. know, trying to make, you know, figure out what you're going to do, how you're going to get back into the workplace and you're sitting at your desk still, right? Mindfulness, a cultivating a mindfulness practice can help us notice when we get into those spirals can help us you know, again, see a broader perspective so that when inevitable changes come, we know that we, okay, we've gotten to where we are today. <laughs> we've done it, all the ups and downs. Every, I mean, I, I wrote a post about, about this, I don't know, halfway through the pandemic. Um, you've already gotten this far in your whole life. It, you know, what was your problem three problems ago? Most people don't know their problem three problems ago, but when it was here, it felt like the worst thing in the world. That, yeah. that it's sort of that the ability to take that wider perspective and 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 also have it, you begin to gain a bit more trust in your own 
inner resources to manage the challenges that life will put on your doorstep, the doorstep of every human being. Um, so anyway, I don't know. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm sort of going off tangent there, but. No, I don't think you are. I think that's exactly right. And, and it brings me to one of the um, practices that you talk about in the book, and it's an acronym, S-P-A-R-R. And I hate acronyms, but sometimes they help. So <laughs> I'd like you to explain that acronym because I think it's really helpful when you're in that kind of negativity bias has taken over your mind and you're ruminating and worrying and freaking out before anything even happens, what should we do? Yeah, well, I would say, so the SPAR technique um, is, is, is typically to be invoked when you are about to have or are in the middle of a difficult conversation. And that could be a difficult conversation with your boss, with your spouse, a partner, with a family member. And you want to, the, the interaction is important enough to you that you want to be very thoughtful, mindful about the relationship and also still advocate for your position. So mm -hmm. SPAR, it stands for stop, pause, assess, recognize, and respond. And so really quick down and dirty stop is as soon as you catch that a comment is a comment, maybe the comment from the other person has triggered you and you just want to sort of retaliate, you can stop in response to that, or you can stop in response to um, any other situation where you know you want to be very careful with your words because the relationship matters, right? So S, the first S or the S stands for stop. Mm -hmm. P is for pause, you know, give yourself a moment so that you can do the rest of the steps, right? So you stop what you're about to do, pause just for a moment, assess. So assess is your own inner weather pattern, right? What emotions are here? What thoughts are running around your head? Not to push them away, not to suppress them, but just even just uh, assess that they're here, okay? Acknowledging that they're here. And then also assess what emotions might the other person be having as well, right? What might they be feeling? What might they be thinking, right? And um, assess what a wiser course of action might be other than the automatic impulse you have, right? So your automatic impulse might've been to cut them off or to yell or to draw up something that they did a month ago or two years ago that you wanna you know, turn the tables on them, right? Um, and then moving into the recognize phase. So recognize that there's a human being on the other side of this conversation, whether it's an email, whether it's a phone call, whether it's a face-to-face -face conversation, that there's another human there and they have a point of view and they have a perspective and they have their own inner um, climate that's happening, their own thoughts, their own feelings. Um, and it's not about, it's not about necessarily agreeing with them, but it's being open to the fact that they have another perspective and operating from that space, right? It's about engaging with them and, and exercising empathy, whether they do it or not, right? You can only manage your side. You can't manage their side, but showing empathy, having empathy can help you respond more thoughtfully, which gets us to the next part, which is respond in the wisest way, taking into consideration all the data you just went through in the beginning of SPAR. And so I, th this word spar is kind of like sparring, right? So it's a difficult conversation. It might feel like sparring, but you can invoke the spar steps 
so that it's not like a sparring match. It's more like a collaborative conversation that can yield a much more positive outcome than going with our automatic impulses, which are often survival-based, right? Mm -hmm. We get into this, you know, amygdala hijack where it's fight or flight or freeze. And we're like in a defensive mode and we're either going to fight or we're going to flee or we're going to freeze and be like super passive. And so this can help us self-advocate, but also take into consideration another person's perspective. Um, and it seems, you know, SPAR is a pretty, you know, S-P-A-R-R is five steps. Um, and it can seem like, well, how could I do that in the middle of a conversation? Two things. Once you do it over, you know, consistently, it'll become very easy and you'll just be operating from that place as a matter of course. But then also, if the relationship is important enough, no one is going to mind a bit of a pause so that you can respond more thoughtfully. They don't need to know that you're going through this, this particular you know, series of steps, but they will recognize that whatever it is you did when you paused was helpful for the conversation. And so that's why, that's why I, you know, I put that in there because, you know, again, we, it's, an, it's a tool that enables you to catch those situations, right? And then be able to do something once you caught the situation that, that's happening, right? And sometimes it's catching that you were about ready to say something that you always say when your wife or your husband says this, and it always turns into a blow up. I think this comes out in week six of the course in the book. Um, and so you've had a few weeks to develop your level of awareness so that you might be starting to catch things more often. Okay, mm -hmm. now I'm catching this. What do I do? Now I'm catching that I was about to say this. What do I do? Spar is, is, is an answer to that. What do I do now? Sometimes the answer is, just don't say the thing you were about ready to say. You know, yeah. that might be enough. You might not even have to go through all this stuff. You might stop at the stop, pause, and realize, I don't need to say anything except for thank you, or I'm sorry, right? It, it, it doesn't have to be an elaborate, deep conversation. And I know that I know, I know the, uh, the examples I give in the book are work-related examples. But I tell you, I, I mean, I, I, I taught a class the other day um, where we had a, uh, an individual who said, we we used an example about um, uh, a, one spouse asking another spouse if they took out the garbage and what's the automatic response that people had and then offered up another explanation for that question. Um, and it was eye-opening that there could even be another explanation for, did you take out the trash, right? The, the assumption on the part of many people was it was, you know, nagging, micromanaging, why haven't you done this yet? When none of that was said, it was just, did you take the garbage out? Right. And then, and then in, further in the exercise, the response was, oh, I'm glad you didn't yet because I just got a notification on my phone that uh, the trash collection isn't happening tomorrow, so you don't have to take it out, right? And so what happened in the beginning was, okay, they're, they're nagging me again, trying to get me to do something. And so just a great deal of awareness in that moment that when you catch that automatic reaction coming up, you might not even have to go through the whole spar thing. Maybe you just stop and say, thank you. Yeah. You know, the, the power of a pause is just one of the, one of the things that really made a huge difference for me because so often we say things that we really don't mean to say because we're simply responding automatically. Mm -hmm. um, we have those moments when you know, we're being defensive when the other person is simply asking a very simple question, but it triggers us. 
So recognizing that, and I think what this practice in particular um, really says to me is that you have to practice a practice for it to be useful. And I like the way that you structured these eight-week course in the book so that you take one week and you really embed yourself with that one lesson and make it part of who you are rather than, okay, I'm going to read this now. And well, I could probably skip to the second one this week. And before you know it, you've read the whole eight eight weeks and you haven't really done it and it hasn't really stuck with you. So you're going to walk away and go, okay, well, I guess that was good. How much of that are you going to absorb? And I think that's something that, you know, you stress in the book and I totally agree with that if we don't really put this into our lives and make it part of it, we're not going to be able to call it up when we need it. And Absolutely. that's yeah. when we recognize, oop, wow, this stuff's powerful because I really need it to just shut up right there. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think I probably use an example. I know I use it on stage quite a lot um, where I could give you the best book on swimming. You can learn the best strokes and how to go fast. And maybe the book is written by, you know, Michael Phelps. And you learn all the best techniques intellectually, but you're not going to become a better swimmer until you jump in the pool. Right. And I encourage people, if they want to read the whole book cover to cover first, that's fine. You'll gain some insights, of course, but it's not until you do the, the exercises week by week as they've foundational, they build upon each other and um, that you'll really reap the full potential benefits that can come from that kind of consistent practice. Um, again, yeah, it's, we sort of talked about it a little earlier. I can motivate people. I can inspire them in some keynote and they're super excited. They leave the keynote and then Monday morning shows up and they got a hundred emails in their inbox. If they, you know, I want to get them into a course that can create some consistent behavior over time to reap the benefits. And, and I hope that's what the book does. I mean, I know some people, many people, maybe all people will just read the whole book and that's it. And it'll, they'll give them a little bit of uh, insight and that's it. I hope that's not what happens. I hope more people actually do the course because they will, they will reap a great deal of, uh, of benefits. Um, there, in, in the mindfulness world, there's a lot of folks, a lot of people who can wax poetically about what mindfulness is and what it can do. And it doesn't take long to figure out that they don't have a daily practice uh, in a conversation. And so um, I want people to not just know mindfulness intellectually, I want them to have built the capabilities the, the 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 base increase their baseline level of mindfulness as i like to say so that they can show up to more and more moments of their life um as opposed to i think in the in the um in the book i mentioned sort of a car ride where you're driving somewhere and you wake up in the middle of it having missed part of the journey because you were lost in thought right mm -hmm. we don't want to get to the end of our lives having missed a big chunk of it because we were living in the, the simulated reality of our heads of our thoughts. Um, and anyway, that's one of the things, one of the sort of benefits of mindfulness beyond performance, beyond leadership, and even beyond well-being. Yeah, it, it's an all-encompassing thing. And, and if you practice and really put this into your life, then you start to realize the benefits that you didn't even know you had. And, you know, I think that we can all be mindful at times. And, you know, when we notice that we're being mindful, that's a win. 
when we're watering the flowers and we're just looking at the flowers and enjoying them, then that's a win and it's a moment. And then we just want to string those moments together. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, I really did enjoy the book and I do hope that people go through the course in a way that they take it one week at a time and really put these things to use because that's how we really cement things. You know, as you said, we don't learn to swim by reading the book. So, you know, people learn to swim. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I tried to put in some useful Q&A at the end of every chapter because it can be difficult to learn something like mindfulness from a book. Mm -hmm. I, I certainly advocate for live teaching, whether it's live virtual or live face-to-face -face, doesn't matter. I think, you know, having someone to be able to ask questions of and, you know, maybe normalize some of your experiences is really, really important. And so I really tried to be thoughtful about what were some of the most common questions or some of the ones that maybe were the most difficult to grapple with in, in each week, starting with week two. Um, because if folks are new to this, there's a lot of things that they're going to come across that are, you know, they're going to sit down and think they're doing it wrong because they're, my, because they're getting lost in thought a lot. And that might be frustrating. But then when, once you realize if you're in a class with 100 people and you realize 99 of them had the exact same experience, you realize, oh, there's oh, this is normal. This is completely normal to get lost in mm -hmm. thought. And also, by the way, whoever the person is up in front of the classroom teaching, I don't care who it is, they get lost in thought too. <laughs> yeah. I could be on a mountaintop in Nepal. I guarantee that person gets lost in thought sometimes, right? Uh, you know, most people at, you know, uh, the other thing is like mindfulness isn't about stopping your thoughts, right? It's not about having a, a mind that where no thoughts are coming. Asking your mind to stop thinking is like asking your lungs to stop breathing. And it's about as useful. Right. What right. the thinking mind does, and it's an important thing. Um, it's not freedom uh, from thoughts. It's freedom with thoughts. And anyway, so I, I tried to, I tried to include, you know, useful questions that people could, could uh, help, help guide them on their eight week journey since they may not be able to talk to me, but I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful, hopeful that they will, right? I put my LinkedIn in there. Hopefully folks will ask me questions and I'll answer as many as I can until I get overwhelmed. Um, depending, and that's all, that's a function of whether the book is successful or not. And hopefully it will be. Here's to being overwhelmed then, I guess, huh? <laughs> well, with that in mind, why don't you tell people how they can find the book, how they can find you and um, let's encourage them to go through the book, take the course, and then go from there. See what, where it takes you. Yeah, so you can find the book anywhere fine books are sold. Certainly, um, you could Google it. You'll find different places. You can go to my website, cliffsmith.com, C-L-I-F-S-M-I-T-H, so one F in Cliff, cliffsmith.com, and uh, find the book page, and you'll get you'll have the links to all the, all the places to buy the book. You can find me on LinkedIn at Cliff Smith, again, one F, um, on Twitter, at Mindful Cliff, M-I-N-D-F-U-L-C-I-C-L-I-F. Um, yeah, and I'd love to hear from you. And one of the things I, you know, I often get emails and, uh, you know, people share on, on uh, LinkedIn with me through, you know, Messenger or whatever, is when people use catch and release, when they've caught a self-limiting belief in the moment, and were released from its power because they caught it and, and attempted to do the thing that they, they, they were desiring to do, 
whether mm -hmm. it was to volunteer for a leadership position, whether it was to ask somebody if they would go out on a uh, virtual date with them or whatever it is that they that they allow they were they enabled themselves to do that thing that their mind was telling them they couldn't do i love to hear those stories because the outcome is not important it's the, it's the fact that you didn't listen to the small mind it didn't listen to the inner critic the inner uh you know the inner uh, whatever the opposite of a cheerleader is i don't know if there's a word for <laughs> opposite of a cheerleader besides critic but um that you transcended that like mm -hmm. that was still there again it doesn't we're not trying to make the voice go away although it might quiet over time but it doesn't matter if it's there or not and that's one of the greatest insights is it doesn't matter what thoughts are there you could still do the thing that your thought is telling you you can't do it's only a thought exactly yeah exactly. yeah so Thank hopefully you so folks to join join uh join the course take read the book do the course and Tell us about all the amazing stories about how it's impacted their life. Well, I'll look forward to reading those stories too. So you, you may have another book in work, say. Some at some point, perhaps. <laughs> I mean, this, I, you know, I in the beginning, obviously, I I sort of map a little bit of my personal journey and how mindfulness has helped along the way. But mindfulness is one aspect of how I went from poverty to prosperity. There were quite a few other things that that had to happen, but mindfulness, I say for sure was foundational. I mean, without mindfulness on board, without catch and release, all those key moments that really mattered in my life where my mind was telling me no, might've gone the other way. Maybe I yeah. wouldn't have, okay, I'm not, I'm, no, you're right. I'm not smart enough to learn Chinese. You know, you know what? I'm not somebody that could get into Harvard. I'm not even gonna try. Those two decisions, I wouldn't. We wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, there are other factors that led to my journey, and and maybe a future book will highlight more of those or integrate more of those. Yeah, great. But we'll see. But one step at a time. I'm on this <laughs> book. This is the present moment book. One spar at a time, perhaps. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you so much, Cliff. I really appreciate you coming on the show. My pleasure, Janet. Look forward to uh, coming back sometime, maybe after the book's out for a while. We'll see how it's been going. That'd be great. Awesome. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Mindful Social. It's been so great to see the subscriptions growing and the feedback has really helped me make the show even better. So if you know somebody who needs to be on the show, email me at Janet at JanetFouts.com and please send me feedback there too, or post a review on the podcast platform you're listening on. Oh, and do me a favor, share this show on social media or with a friend. Thank you.